0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mind Yourself podcast in association with Motus Learning. So my next guest I'm extremely excited about because not only is she an expert in our field, but she is also a good friend. With a first class honors psychology degree, a psychology PhD, I'm on record to say she's one of the most smart, smartest, most talented people I've come across in the field. Her research is focused on the effectiveness of mental health treatments online as well as how to optimize everyday functioning. After completing a postdoc in DCU, she has now moved back home to UL where she will be working on a research team led by Professor Orla Muldoon. You're very welcome, Dr. Elena Hearn. How are you today?
1: I'm very good, and thank you for that introduction. I feel like I need to bring you around with me everywhere. <laughs> don't know if I can live up to those expectations, but I'll definitely take every, it.
0: <laughs> um, every guest says that, yeah, I really, really hope.
1: You. <laughs> you do a very good ah. job.
0: <laughs> so this season's theme, as um, as we've spoken about, Elaine, is set around cyber psychology, and I thought it was good to have you on to discuss uh, the literature around your PhD topic, which was online CBT. For those who are unaware online therapy exploded recently because of the pandemic and some are claiming that it's here to stay so my first question to you elaine is um does online therapy work
1: Mm, so i think that is yeah a question that a lot of us are actually asking um if you look at the evidence base the evidence base does suggest that for the majority of people online therapy works now, I think it's important to qualify that with, it works for some people, but not everyone. Okay. So online therapy is often considered as low intensity treatment. So it's recommended more so for people who've got less severe symptoms of, say, depression or anxiety. And the reasoning behind they recommend um, online therapy for individuals with lesser uh, severity symptoms is because it's very hands-off approaches, I suppose, how you could describe it. So you obviously have the, uh, it's known as self-directed or undirected, um, and that's where the individual themselves goes through the material, so the cognitive behavioral therapy material, and kind of this idea of, you know, our thoughts affect our behaviors and our mood and so on. Okay, so I think that um, form of online therapy is successful, but not for everyone.
0: So because I know, because generally CBT is fairly hands on, it's expected, like even if it was in person, it's expected that the client goes home and works on it through homework or whatever. So are you kind of saying is it specifically CBT or have you looked at other forms of therapy?
1: So I suppose the largest evidence based is CBT. Um, So the way that it's worked is because with sort of the first technology on the scene, how we worked with putting, I suppose, the technology in with clinical therapy is actually using the technology as a means to improve access to therapies that other people might necessarily have access to. So obviously the problems with long waiting lists, um, cost and and so on as well. So technology has been applied to the already established programmes, but CBT would definitely be the largest evidence base. Now, you can also have um, interpersonal therapy as well. There's some evidence there, but I don't at a stage where you could recommend it as an implementation service um, on national and international um, Mm. levels. Internet CBT has actually been rolled out, but most of the internet CBT that's been rolled out, even though in Ireland it was announced this week that um, online therapy and counselling would be available to people, but that sort of therapy, um, for the most part... Can be self directed, but there's also an idea that you're working alongside a therapist that would be known as directed or the guided CBT, and that tends to be more effective. So, that the what I mean by more effective is that when you're looking at symptoms, the symptoms induce after, say, eight weeks or 12 weeks of the standard therapy length, but again, for everyone. So, I think it's important that when we're talking about online therapy, that we're not saying that one is better than the other. Online therapy should replace um, in-person or face-to-face therapy. It's just for some individuals who might need um, a more immediate access. Say, for example, if they're on a waiting list for face-to-face therapy, or if cost is an issue, then this is definitely um, a very efficacious alternative to have. But yeah. as I said, it probably won't work for everyone. So having this I, sort of I actually of best.
0: I actually have a good example. Um, I remember a client in the clinic I worked in once. He genuinely couldn't afford the public transport to come. And that's something that I think people often forget that it's kind of, you know, it's, it's actually a privilege that you can uh, go to attend therapy. Um, another thing now, this is, again, completely anecdotal, um, Elaine. So I don't know. I just like your opinion on it as well. Like, some people are saying they enjoy online therapy more, um, people I've spoken to, because particularly related to anxiety, it's very anxiety-provoking if you have to go meet a therapist, somebody you've never met before, like go into an arena, a social setting that you've never been to before, Um, while as opposed to home is kind of a safe setting. So if all you have to do is log into Zoom or into Microsoft Teams, it's a lot less intimidating. Um, So is that a variable maybe that you've looked at in relation to like when they're doing these online therapies, do they ask the client what they would prefer before?
1: On occasion. Yes. So there is research that looks at preference so it's this idea that they, rather than, I suppose, telling a participant that, okay, you're going to receive online therapy, they give them the option of whether they'd like to choose online therapy or face-to-face therapy. Yeah. And research does suggest that when preference comes into play, that often, again, the outcomes are better. But I think what you mentioned, Christy, I know you, you said it was anecdotal, um, and and also just asking about whether, for someone with anxiety, would online therapy possibly work better? And I do strongly believe that that might be the case, because as you said, for someone who might be anxious or even individuals who are anxious about the whole therapy process, you know, it's a lot to expect of someone to be able to go to someone to have these very open frank conversations. And that in and of itself is quite intimidating. So even if it's just as a stepping stone towards possibly going towards face to face therapy, is a lot of benefit for online therapy Mm. because it's kind of dipping your toe in the water in terms of, okay, I'm learning these different principles. I'm learning that my thoughts affect my mood or my behaviors are affecting my mood. So you're familiarizing yourself with the content, which in and of itself might be enough for you. That you don't need to kind of go on to higher intensity therapy or face-to-face therapy but for some people you will need to kind of escalate up um but i think that's where the value of online therapy is it can be this low intensity stepping stone towards something else It can help people familiarize themselves with the content that you know if they are very anxious about going to see a therapist so you know, they can familiarize themselves they have an idea of what to expect in terms of uh, you know the basic principles of therapy And just also some experiences that individuals have are actually maybe better suited towards online therapy. So there's been some work done actually looking at social phobia. And so obviously if an individual has social phobia, this idea of going to a therapist and speaking about uh, their experiences wouldn't be the most inviting. So being able to access those resources um, by themselves, work through it at their own pace, in the comfort of their own home, has a lot of appeal to it. Obviously, then, coupled with the fact that it's accessible, it's available, you don't have to be waiting for appointments and so on. And it's, you know, it's immediate, immediate access. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, when anyone ever asks, you know, do you think online therapy is effective? You always have to wait up. Yeah. It will be effective, but at the same time, we're not saying that you shouldn't go see a therapist. I think it's, everyone will have to gauge for themselves. But what I would definitely say is that anyone considering it, definitely try it. um there's loads of different resources out there that you can try there are free online courses there are other ones that you might need to pay subscription fees for there's also the actual live you know zoom or teams call with a therapist as well and you know it's it's definitely an option to Um, explore
0: um you actually bet me to it because i was of course going to bring up the news headline recently that ireland have announced free therapy um I haven't looked into it massively, but I am sceptical that it was a tick-the-box exercise of if we release this, we'll look great, but is it actually going to work? Um, I don't know how much have you looked into it. It's okay if you haven't, but um, you mentioned, is it just self-directed therapy is what they're offering or it is?
1: From my understanding, it seems to be self-directed now i do think that you can link in with someone if you have any further queries or if there's anything you'd like to discuss further but it seems to be weighted definitely more towards that you do within your own time your own pace yeah. now there's nothing wrong with that at all like as i said it, it can be different. effective yeah. for some people you know these arguments for online therapy you always have to look at it from both sides
0: The one thing I was going to say, I I don't know, are you familiar, Elaine? Have you heard of Silver Cloud Health? You probably have through your meta-analysis.
1: Yes, yes, I have.
0: Yeah, they seem to be, um, I was talking to somebody recently who started working with them. They seem to be doing great things. Um, This isn't a promotion or anything, but um, (laughs) like, so they're providing online therapy with a clinician, but because as well, because sometimes we're overly focused on the client perspective, but from the... Service provider perspective, I think it's actually great because it allows them to see more clients quicker, as opposed to having to set up. You know, like let's say group therapy or different individual therapy, they can reach more people as well. Um, and I I think it's an opportunity now. This is me probably getting overexcited as usual, but I think it's an opportunity because I always like we're always talking about this that the importance of providing employment for psychology graduates because it's a big big issue. Um, that people aren't aware of but I think this online platform could be an opportunity possibly like you mentioned if somebody's on a waiting list and they can get access to something like I think obviously not saying that an assistant psychologist would come in and um, become a clinician for somebody but just support them through the online CBT I think that's a great possibility but it's just the government and the higher powers need to kind of get their shit together (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, I completely, I completely agree with you. So it's interesting that you mentioned about the APs, the assistant psychologists, because I I do believe that there was, I I think it might have been called Mindwise now, I mightn't um, be completely correct in the name, but the HSE had rolled out a program in Ireland where they were looking at online therapy. They did a bit of research, collected data on it. And as far as I know, it was assistant psychologists that were delivering the intervention. Um, Now, I don't actually know the data from it, but what I know from other research is that when assistant psychologists tend to deliver the interventions or just a kind of um, healthcare provider that's not uh, clinically trained, so that might be, um, for example, a health coach, Um, when they deliver the online cognitive behavioral therapy, it doesn't seem to be as effective as when the individual actually works with clinicians or a clinical psychologist, for example. Mm. So there is something to be said there about what is it actually that's driving the benefit of online therapy? Is it that we're still getting this therapeutic alliance with the therapist, but it's just via an alternative mechanism? And then if that is the case, then obviously the therapeutic alliance is so important. So that would also explain why individuals working away themselves without a therapist but working through the materials might be I suppose as beneficial but you're talking about scaling up therapy then so if we do sort of roll out these programs then all of a sudden everything that we've just said in terms of reducing waiting lists you know reducing costs and so on unfortunately it doesn't apply anymore if we're saying now that a therapist or clinical psychologist or whoever it may be needs to be monitoring these systems so as much as i want to advocate for online therapy i do think it's absolutely fantastic i think we have to strike a balance between what can we feasibly roll out for individuals but also what are the costs going to be involved in it because we know that working with the therapist is better but it's also more costly
0: yeah
1: so then do we roll out low intensity online cbt no therapist involved knowing that possibly the outcomes won't be as good but you'll still have far reach, and it's not going to be as costly. So, the, as I hate to say it. But go on. Yeah, it just always comes down. No, I was to say it. Anything mental health related always comes down to what's the cost. Yeah. And I really hate to say it, but it's true. If you want to fund any new programs, you're looking at what's the benefit versus the cost. Mm. And I think that. Now, I think it's fantastic that, you know, they're rolling out the new online counselling services in Ireland. But I do think a question is, what is the benefit versus the cost? And that's something we're really going to have to watch over the upcoming years to see whether such programmes continue to get funding or not. Um, Because I know the UK, and you can probably even speak to the IOPS programme in the UK, you know, they, you know, it it was great. They had their... um, their online therapy rolled out, but I don't know if the findings they got were as promising as they'd hoped.
0: Yeah, the um, that's what I was just going to bring up. They brought in the new role in the UK of the um, psychological well-being practitioner, who I think was basically, you would do an undergraduate, you would do a master's, and then you would do a one-year course to become a, a, a PWP. And they were the ones who were responsible for the... Online therapy, as far as I'm aware, um, particularly during COVID, but I, I suppose like this again is pure idealism. But in an ideal world, what would happen was would be that if while somebody was on a waiting list, they would get the low intensity CBT training online of uh, often assistant psychologist or a psychological wellbeing practitioner, and then that would then be followed by the actual therapy like with a yeah exactly medication. exactly
1: it's the stepped, the stepped care model exactly um that's what i think we need but whether we'll get there i'm not <laughs> because,
0: sure yeah yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> we can hope
0: <laughs> um okay and elaine i know you i want to get as much out of you as possible so i'm going to move away from the online therapy um a lot of your work specifically tied around depression and cognitive functioning um can you firstly just explain i know this sounds basic for us but uh can you just explain for anybody listening what exactly do you refer to when you're saying cognitive functioning and then can you just talk a bit about what happens cognitive functioning during depression
1: yeah so uh, cognitive functioning is basically everything we do day to day. So it's our ability to pay attention to particular details, to memorize particular details. Um, And I suppose the term that most people wouldn't be familiar with is this idea of executive functioning. So executive functioning is just essentially our ability to coordinate everything. So it's how we go about planning things, how we might shift our attention from one thing to another, and how we update the contents of our memory. Um, so all of that collectively is known as our cognitive functioning so how we perform mental tasks and so on so what research has found is that when an individual is experiencing depressive symptoms that their cognitive functioning tends to get worse so that means that so I don't want to say that on average people perform at a particular uh, or they get a particular score. I really don't want to say that, but generally that's how it works. So people undergo uh, tests and there's an average score based on someone's age or gender or education level, for example. And what they find is that when an individual is experiencing um, an episode of depression, so that just means that they have a certain number of depressive symptoms for at least um, a two week period. Um, they, yeah the, their performance is worse and what they find then is that collectively after numerous episodes of depression performance has, seems to have a, a, well, a scarring effect so that with every episode of depression performance seems to be getting a little bit worse on certain cognitive functions and then as well what the research suggests is that even though a person recovers from the depressive symptoms their cognitive functioning doesn't recover at the same rate so what that means is that even though mood symptoms return to normal so you no longer have the depressive symptoms you still have a lingering um, worsening of cognitive performance which might alleviate with time but it's just not alleviating as quickly as we want it to and definitely not in parallel with the mood symptoms mm. so that's what a lot of my research is looking at it's trying to figure out why is it that you know we know depression to be a mood disorder, so a lot of the treatments just focus on mood. So cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. If you're if anyone says that cognitive behavioral therapy is effective, they're talking about because it um, alleviates mood symptoms right. using various different scales from mood. So for example, the back depression inventory. Um, but that isn't all that depression is. We know that depression has large bearing on you know our cognitive functions which is my area of interest but also for example um, on functional outcomes so individuals um, at work so individuals who have um, depressive symptoms find it harder to engage in work because um, you know there's a lot of demands on you cognitively day on day so what we're finding is that possibly the cognitive functions during depression account for those other um, poor outcomes that we're seeing. So the poor engagement with work, um, uh, poor productivity outcomes and so on. So um, my research hopes to basically figure out what is happening in terms of cognition during depression and possibly if we can treat the cognition alongside um, the mood symptoms, maybe outcomes overall then will be better. Um, and then I suppose my research also has a cost effectiveness interest in it so when I'm talking about cost effectiveness it's um, alleviating the cost of illness um, not only for the individual but also for society so lost work placement is a huge financial cost for society and resulting from depression so that's Um, kind of where my research sits I have
0: about 10 questions. Okay. Huge <laughs> <Shoot>, go on. <laughs> First one, just to cancel out, it's an obvious one, but I think it's also always important to ask. There's no chance that the, cognitive, the decline in cognitive functioning precedes the depression. The, the depression definitely comes first. Has that been looked at?
1: So, no, that's a good question because we can't figure that out. There's no conclusive evidence yet. So there is um, a suggestion that the poor cognitive functioning does precede depression. So essentially it's a vulnerability factor for it. Um, But again, we can't say that with any degree of conclusiveness because we haven't got the research to actually support that yet. But I do believe that it kind of works both ways, that depression causes or contributes to the cognitive, the poor cognitive performance, but also for some individuals, the poor cognitive performance is a vulnerability, which might contribute to the onset of depression. But it's, you're trying to say what well, okay, came first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah. And we're not quite there in research yet to say with any degree of
0: confidence. That's interesting from a researcher perspective, because then that brings up, is there a common area in the brain that basically when when that declines, it leads to depressive symptoms and cognitive function, is uh, declines simultaneously. Um, which I'll come to in a sec, because I know you also have probably thought about that. Um the, probably the most scariest part of that research that you mentioned was that even when the depressive symptoms improve, there's still not an improvement in the cognitive um, side of things. So your cost-effectiveness is basically, is it trying to show that it's far better from a societal perspective if somebody doesn't get depression at all? Is that kind of what you're looking at then? Like a preventative method's better.
1: Oh, yes, definitely. Prevention is better. I think for prevention, we need to have a fairly good idea of what the vulnerability factors are. Um, okay. Only then can we really intervene at such an early stage to stop onset. Okay. Again, I just don't think we're there research-wise yet. So a lot of the research is actually on intervention post when an individual um, has started experiencing depression. So ideally, yeah, we get to a stage where it's prevention. Um,
0: is, it, is the research there anywhere internationally? Like, has there been studies done in other countries?
1: Yeah, so we do know that there are a couple of vulnerability factors. So stress is definitely a vulnerability factor. And actually what you mentioned, um, I was so strong on the fact that I said that, you know, research anyway seems to show that cognitive functions don't go back to the, the original levels after an episode of depression. But I suppose a vulnerability factor then is that individuals have different patterns of activity, um, activity, brain activity. Um, And they look at actually the first degree relatives of individuals who have severe depression and they find then that the brain activity patterns or the structure of the brain actually slightly differs from other individuals who have no family history of depression. So that suggests that there is at some very basic level brain changes happening that may make an individual somewhat more susceptible to depression. Yeah, There are factors there. Um, in order to say with any degree of certainty we would need to map people over decades um yeah. watching you know who we think might be vulnerable whether they end up developing it and then also having a comparative group that we could we can look at towards um we're trying to get there i i think it's just going to take a bit of time for the evidence base yeah. to catch up
0: so there's obviously a, um Obviously, it's more inclined that you have a cognitive decline, but there are people who develop depression and don't have a cognitive decline.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. So that's also something we're trying to figure out. So it's not everyone who experiences depression will present the exact same way, even in terms of symptoms. If you look at the symptoms of depression, it, generally it's low mood accompanied with loss of interest and activities. Um, and then you've got, you know, a plethora of other symptoms. So disturbances of sleep, changes in appetite and so on. But not everyone will have the same symptoms. It's kind of a collection of those symptoms. And if you meet a certain number of them uh, um, and you get to the threshold point, you're considered to have depression. It's the exact same with the cognition side of things. So individuals who have depression mightn't show up as having any cognitive um, deficits. Whereas you have other individuals who show up with some and then you've others that have a broad range of cognitive deficits. And we're not quite sure why, to be honest. It's We're trying to, again, figure that out. But it does seem to be the case that some people might be more susceptible. Um, and it's how mood interacts with cognition to have sort of a... Um, Uh, different effects for different people so it's no one size fits all it's I think that's where personalized therapy comes in sorry to throw in a spanner in the works but there is another um, approach to therapy it's like personalized therapy or personalized medicine Um, and it's looking at I suppose looking well I suppose the idiosyncrasies of every person and seeing how do we best go about figuring out which treatment is best for each individual based on their symptom profile
0: yeah, because now this has just popped into my head. If somebody's cognitive functioning has fallen massively, and then they're being told you need to understand CBT and do homework on it, effectiveness is not going to be there. Of course, it's not.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be there. So, um, some research that I did was actually looking at cognitive behavioral therapy augmented with a cognitive training program and the idea then is that they mutually benefit each other so that if you're engaging with cognitive behavioral therapy materials it's all about how you where your focus of your attention is essentially you know what parts are you giving attention to how might you be able to shift that attention and so on so yeah exactly as you said if someone is experiencing deficits in cognitive function or in attention they're going to have much more difficult time trying to engage with that material so the idea behind that research that we did was to actually look at whether okay if we're going to simultaneously train cognitive function alongside someone learning about the and engaging with cbt materials they should both complement each other because the cbt should be helping alleviate the mood symptoms so that the individual hopefully then should be able to better engage with the cognitive tasks because they're not going to be distracted with Um, the the particular mood profile that happens during depression.
0: I'm assuming the cognitive functioning development was done on an app or online.
1: Yeah, it was done online. Um, There was an associated app. So the program we were using was um, CogniFit and it's very, very simple. It's just a series of cognitive trainings um, that the individual engages with. Um, But I suppose I do want to distinguish between cognitive training and what people typically consider, you know, just playing a game or or some some app-based game on your phone because, um, although that is good as well, but I suppose when it comes to these specialised training programmes, there are a number of perimeters that they tick to make sure that it's actively engaging um, you cognitively and ensuring that there are changes happening at a neuropsychological and neuroanatomical level. So the first thing first is that it's, training you so that every time you engage with it it's challenging you so it's always trying to up um, your level of performance so it's making sure that you remain um, engaged um, and then it flexibly adapts to you as well so um, and also the sorts of strategies that you'd be engaging with on those sort of training programs are specifically adapt or they're um, specifically developed, I suppose, with an evidence base so that it knows that it's engaging the particular parts of the brain that have shown to be, mm. um, I suppose, underperforming during depression.
0: It, Elaine, I don't know, do you remember when we were younger? Um, I didn't notice until I learned about it in my master's um, the brain training craze of uh, there was a Japanese. I think he could have been a researcher or he was maybe a clinician. Basically started marketing. He marketed very, very well that you can help your child's like development by doing these brain training games essentially. And he made he made millions and then basically just went off the face of the earth because the research was showing it doesn't do anything
1: yeah yeah oh gosh that's if anyone working in cognitive training or cognitive mediation is another terminology for it but that's a little bit more specialized anyone working in that domain always is prepared for backlash because of you know absolute instances like that that you described it's like is it actually having any benefit or is it just we're just completely commercializing something out and telling people that it will help them And I think that's where we kind of get into a tricky area between what are the benefits of technology for mental health treatment and so on, because it's, the technology makes everything so accessible and available, but there's also possibly money to be made from it as well if you sell it in a particular way.
0: Your study is kind of different though, in regards to like, you're not like that original, I think it was early 2000s, that original like marketing ploy was directed towards everyone. But yours is far more specialized. It's specifically focusing on people who have depression, who are low, who have lower cognitive ability. So it's based, backed up by theory, you know. So I would say it's far more legit, anyway. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Christy. <laughs> yeah, it um, yeah, no, in in fairness, in, in fairness, though, the the research base for cognitive training and cognitive remediation is really promising particularly when you're looking at, um, I suppose, psychopathologies or sort of mental um, uh, disorders. So for example, if you're looking at schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, major depressive disorder as well, there is a lot of benefit to cognitive training because those three um, disorders that I would have just mentioned, they're very similar in that they all show cognitive deficits just to various severity. Um, but cognitive mediation or those training programs have shown to be really effective and there's a lot of really really interesting work going on at the moment in Canada and they're looking at this sort of cognitive training just as a basic um, a task that the uh, individuals engage with but then they're supplementing it with um, working with a therapist and trying to support um, better um, re-engagement for employment and they find really really promising results there for um, individuals with Schizophrenia. So, if I suppose it's sort of this idea of a layering that we're not just saying that, oh, yeah, go out and play, you know, these brain games, these cognitive trainings, they'll be a benefit for you. There's actually looking at how that can augment other treatments or programs that are there. Now, there is benefit, obviously, in and of themselves. But if you think about how can this complement cognitive behavioral therapy? How can this complement yeah. um, employment supported programs? that's where a lot of the benefits are actually coming from. So I think that's possibly where technology is being brilliant right now because technology allows you to marry two very different treatment approaches and see what the outcomes are. And that traditionally wouldn't have been possible if we were still back in the modalities of face-to-face therapies because it would have been too difficult to coordinate all of that or to allow participants access or patients access to all of that as well.
0: Um this could be outside your scope now but out of interest um has sleep been looked at between the two of them because that's a massive correlate between like it's a very common insomnia or uh, sleep problems are very common uh for people who are depressed and then also if you don't get enough sleep even day-to-day functioning your cognitive functioning is generally terrible yeah yeah no there
1: has been research there as well um looking at both of them and some research does suggest that it sleep and poor sleep during depression might actually account for um the, these poor cognitive functions that we're seeing in some cases again not in all cases so actually other research suggests that there's just um a change in the level of the brain um during a, an experience of depression that it you know, in layman's terms, results in a rewiring or different activity patterns. And because of the different um, functionings that are happening in the brain at the time, that then manifests as changes in your attention, changes in your memory ability, changes in your executive functioning ability. Um, it's just whether it's at the very, I suppose, root level, if it's a biological change that's happening in the brain, or whether it's explained by another behavioral symptom, such as poor sleep we don't quite know yet but all we know is that they all seem to be associated together probably you know impacting each other as well um So it is. It's very, it's very complex, and it's it's so hard to say that exactly that one thing causes the other. But they definitely are all associated with each other.
0: Everyone we have on the conversation always just ends with it's very complicated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're also covering our own selves with that, but it is actually true. It is though.
0: Um, And then I want to move, so I know you've briefly mentioned it there when you were speaking about it, but um, so you're working more or you were working more on the neuro side of things. Um, Is there anything that you haven't mentioned about the neuro side um, or have you mentioned at all of depression? I
1: suppose I've spoken to um, most of it. I suppose the other um, area of my research is just trying to figure out what is actually the best thing to do when it comes to mental health treatment. So how I ended up in the online uh, mental health treatment space was because of basically the abundance of opportunity that online platforms offer. So as I would have mentioned before, it's this idea that you can combine treatments to have a novel treatment strategy and you can actually Mm -hmm. test that in research to see the benefits of it. And because my interests lie in both mental health and I suppose the neuropsychological cognitive functioning side of things, it's ideal for me because that's how I can, I suppose, marry or combine two treatment approaches and see the benefits of them. Mm. And overall, um, I think my research efforts very much align um, towards an overall goal to try and figure out you know what yeah what is the best treatment because what we know for certain is that traditional therapy formats everything that we know about psychology and therapy when it comes to depression tends to be cognitive behavioral therapy for the most part that's the gold standard treatment and it is effective for alleviating mood symptoms but what research suggests is that it actually doesn't do much in terms of the other aspect of depression and my focus is the cognition side of things So if treatment approaches that are made available for everyone aren't actually treating the complexity of what we know depression to be, then what is the point of only treating a particular side of it and then saying, "Yep, you're perfect, thumbs up, you're recovered, when the individual still experiences a lot of difficulties day to day, their attention, their cognitive functioning and so on might need to be better back to the normal levels they're then having knock-on effects in terms of their engagement with work and social interactions you know home management and so on so really I think where researchers are at the moment is trying to strive for this idea of not a mood recovery but it's a functional recovery and I suppose this idea of functional recovery is much more inclusive than just mood we're looking at everything we want to make sure that individuals do actually feel like they're recovering they're returning back to their um, original levels before the experience of depression and I mean, that's go on, go on oh no i no, was just saying that's where i think we all should be aiming to be whether it's researchers clinicians you know service providers it's we're gone beyond mood you know we know that there's more to depression and like the exact same can be said for you know anxiety bipolar schizophrenia and so on it's think for so long we viewed these um, mental health conditions in one particular I suppose you know tunnel vision almost Um, and now we're broadening that a little bit more and that's what's offering the opportunity in terms of different treatment approaches and that's also why technology is so important because it's allowing us an opportunity to see how we can you know develop implement roll out test these different treatment strategies as well which um, overall it's going to benefit mental
0: health two questions Elaine first one um they're actually kind of related the first one do you think this is common knowledge um not among the research world but among the clinician world do you think clinicians are still overly focused on mood or are they aware of this kind of overall functioning approach
1: mm, I think it depends the clinician you speak to
0: <laughs> in general though
1: yeah to I, I, I'll
0: start sorry I'll start Elaine internationally first and then go nationally in Ireland
1: um mm, I think most people still are stuck in the traditional viewpoint that depression is a mood disorder it is now I'm not saying that it's not I just think it's a mood and da da da, da, da. You know other symptom profiles as well, and if we just look at mood, and if we really fixate on the mood side of things, we're only you know backing ourselves into a corner, limiting the possibility for treatment options. And I think you know as with anything, we sometimes fall into patterns and routine, and I think we're in a little bit of a routine at the moment when it comes to how to treat depression and associated mental health conditions. And as I said, the psychological approach has very much been dominated by CBT. Um, for the last few decades and I, yeah, I don't think clinicians are necessarily at a stage to explore other treatment opportunities because the research isn't there and the evidence base isn't yet there to give other recommendations for treatment mm. and because of that you know many clinicians might look past the fact that okay depression is a mood disorder we'll treat it that way I think we're not quite there with the research to actually have those really engaged conversations with clinicians to say no no think of these other options um i do think there's a, probably an awareness though that there are other aspects of mood it's just not being considered in terms of treatment plans
0: yeah because there is kind of do you know there there is this kind of we need to move away from like the diagnostic manual like we need to move away from diagnoses and this seems to be kind of like a vehicle to do that like it's an opportunity to kind of just focus more on symptoms overall functioning rather than just this is depression for example um which is interesting um I know your research has specifically focused on depression but is there have you looked at it all is there any relationship between cognitive functioning and anxiety yeah so there is um I suppose cognitive deficits
1: wouldn't be observed to as much of a degree in anxiety but when you compare for example depression bipolar disorder and schizophrenia the cognitive deficits are much more severe in bipolar disorder and schizophrenia that's because of the um those, the different symptom profiles the psychosis for example as well when it comes to schizophrenia but in general there does seem to be cognition and there was a really interesting paper published last year actually and it referred to it as the C factor and it's a C standing for cognition and it's this idea that mental disorders for example anxiety, depression, bipolar and schizophrenia are actually all explained by the C factor which is cognition and there's altered cognition happening in all of them it's just to various different degrees. Now with depression the altered cognition tends to be mood related Whereas in anxiety, um, the altered cognition tends to be more so about risk assessment and obviously the anxiety and the evaluation associated with that as well. So you'd find probably um, deficits in attention predominantly in anxiety because it's where we put our attentional focus, particularly when you're assessing risk. Um, and, And it wouldn't be as diverse or as broad, I suppose, cognitive deficits as we'd see in the likes of, say, depression, bipolar or schizophrenia just because the symptom profiles tend to be more severe um, than just generalized anxiety for example but definitely there is some linkage happening between all of them in terms of cognitive functions, cognitive symptoms, uh, you know many different terms there, the C factor um, but yeah it does all seem
0: to be linked. And um, I'm being completely selfish here because this is what I'm interested in, it might not be our listeners but Cognition. a part of cognition is emotion regulation so i'm this is extremely simplistic but cognition is generally the prefrontal cortex i'm fair enough in saying that yeah 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 um
1: yeah so for anything decision making related um it would be the prefrontal cortex and there would be other areas involved that's
0: interesting then because if your cognition goes down then your ability to regulate emotions goes down which then is like a a cycle a negative cycle of basically if your cognition's gone down you can't regulate your emotions if you can't regulate your emotions the emotions are only going to get worse the negative ones um all right sorry i'm in deep thought here
1: <laughs> no no no. you're right it's um yeah so the prefrontal cortex is i suppose a very important part of the brain because it is everything that you said it's the emotion regulation it's the decision making mm. and they do go hand in hand so there's actually you probably interested in a christy bush it's the cognitive control network. Have you come yeah. across that? Yeah. yeah. So it's the idea then that emotion regulation, rumination and cognitive control are all highly linked. Now, the listeners are probably thinking, what are they talking about? But um, cognitive control is just, you know, your ability to, I suppose, update the information in, your, in that you currently hold in mind. So yeah. for someone with depression, they tend to hold negative information in mind and they have difficulties updating that um, to remove the negative information for example
0: and it is this decline in the this is the big question for me now uh is this decline in cognitive functioning have you has it only been looked at in adults or has it been looked in adolescents, children in
1: adolescence as
0: well
1: yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay yeah i'll send you on a paper <laughs> after this
0: <laughs> yeah. um some no, take think thinking there because, you know, everybody always in the education system hating on maths, but, do you know, like, I, I still think maths has a lot more benefit than you think it does in relation to logic and problem solving. Do you know, it actually is beneficial to mental health as well. Um, yeah, the, I, I think I'm going to kind of because I know I'm weary of time. Um, it's funny because we're constantly in in the education system. I do think it's going towards the transition where most people have the opinion. You can't just teach academics that you need to teach the social emotional, basically how to live. But at the same time, it's something I never ta- thought about until we've spoken, but in the therapy world, in the psychology world, it's the same thing. It's, we can't just focus on mood. We need to focus on general living, basically how to live, Um, you know, how to function, cognition, etc. Um, So, yeah i i i think that's really really exciting sorry i'm no, 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 I find it exciting too. I've dedicated my life's work well, my life's work, early life's work. Ah. <laughs> um, last question, Elaine. Um, we asked this to, oh, actually, no, I want to ask you two more questions. The first thing, I won't let you go until you promote, obviously, what you're doing at the moment. I know it's related to what you spoke about, but Orla's, uh, Orla Muldoon's overall project in UL, um, what is kind of your research team working on?
1: Mm. So yeah, so our Millenniums Research Project it, so it's the Cintic model, so the social identity model of trauma identity change. Now that's a little bit, um, I suppose, not directly in the field of, of neuropsychology or clinical psychology, but it's actually um, more so focused on the social psychological aspect of it and how we understand um, trauma and, in particular, um, the identities that we formulate in and around that trauma. And um, there's really interesting work at the moment that we're looking at. It's uh, a review and we're looking at possibly how therapy as we know it, so group therapy, and what are the drivers of that benefit for individuals who've experienced um, a traumatic experience. So is it actually the therapeutic benefit or is there something to do with the group setting and how the individual identifies with others, how they formulate this trauma identity? And is it actually that social process that's driving the benefits that we traditionally would have said would have been clinical benefits from group therapy? So it's still in the remit of clinical psychology, mental health, um, And post uh, actually the outcomes that we're looking at are are post-traumatic stress disorder. So that would be linked in with trauma experiences as well. But it's through a different lens, which I think is really, really exciting. So again, it's testing the boundaries of what is mental health? How do we treat mental health? And kind of pushing out the barriers of how can clinical psychology be of benefit? Because now we're coming with, I suppose, complementary perspectives. So whereas I would have looked at the clinical neuropsychological perspective research project um, led by uh, Professor Orla Muldoon and and the team um, at UL are looking at it through a social psychological lens so again it's we're trying to just benefit mental health outcomes and looking at those alternative approaches to treatment um, which if you went back a couple of decades ago no one would even question it because you know we would have been very set in our ways of how we go about conceptualizing and treating mental health conditions and now I think it's just we're in a really really exciting place at the moment in psychology and mental health and how we're just actually you know, like brainstorming these different approaches yes. and how to treat it. So yeah, so that's um the project really really exciting research that's going on at UL at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah,
0: I'm I I'm glad we we need to promote UL more. So. <laughs> yeah. Um and then last question, Lane. I'm go- I put everybody on the spot with this. You don't need to rush. You can have a minute to think about it. We ask all of our guests. Um the majority of our listeners are parents, teachers. So the question I'd like to ask is if you could teach the next generation like of young people one thing from all of everything you've learned in relation to psychology or just in life in general, um what would it be? I'll give you a minute, you don't need to rush. Oh,
1: that that's a big question. <laughs> um do you know what I suppose keeping it on the theme of mental health one thing that I suppose I would like to to teach or you know um is a wisdom that you could impart on the next generation would be that you know it's for so long I think we've had such a negative attitude with mental health and I know we spoke about online therapy at the beginning of the podcast and you know, I've even had very frank conversations with friends and family members. And if you were to say to someone, oh, you know, I did some CBT there, got a brilliant new app for it. There's always this association with, oh, what, what's wrong with you? Why do you need to use that? And I really don't like that narrative that we've associated with how we use therapeutic materials, how we engage with them. I really don't, because I think what's probably most important to know is that there's a very fine line between good mental health and poor mental health. And it's a continuum. day you'll be good mental health. The next day you might be tipping more towards the bad mental health side of things. And I think we shouldn't wait until we're in a state of bad mental health to start engaging in these um, therapeutic processes. Yeah. So myself now, um, I every day often use like CBT principles, this idea of a thought is associated with a mood. If I thought this particular way, I felt this way. Oh, well, maybe if I think about it this way. How would I feel then? And then it's getting into that frame of mind that, okay, I am actually in control of my emotions to a certain degree and how I think affects my emotions. And that's a very basic psychological principle. And that is the underpinning, essentially, in very, very layman's terms of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I would love to see the next generation have that appreciation for, you know, mental health. It it doesn't need to be poor mental health or bad mental health that we're engaging in these therapeutic processes for, as I said, it's very, very simple. A thought leads to a particular mood. And I think that day on day, even when we're in a good frame of mind or a positive mood, we should still always reflect on those basic principles. I'm feeling great today. What, well, what was I thinking? Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. And then just establishing that link between thoughts and feelings and mood, I think, is so, so important. And I wish... If I could even impart some wisdom on my younger self, it would have been something like that. And, you know, I think I'm only in a a position of privilege because of the research that I've done and having studied psychology that I can say that now. But I know that that's not common knowledge for everyone. And I think that would be something fantastic if we could just teach the next generation,
0: Mm. you know,
1: just always look after your mental health. Don't wait until it's bad. Engage in these different therapies. Be in the know, essentially. Yeah. and just practice it day in and day out and make it a bit of a routine for yourself. Um, and I think that would just be wonderful, you know, if, if the next generation could you know, think about that or engage with it a little more. I think as a nation, even, you know, the small little nation that we are, um, we could all benefit from that, I think, every now and again.
0: Very good answer. And I'm going to say kind of promoted motive, so i'm all go with that <laughs> um okay um elaine i want to thank you so so much um i have the great fortune that i of course will be speaking to you more about uh your research because i found it extremely interesting um we might have you on again depending on if people were happy with it um <laughs> because i know you have loads more to talk about so Thank you so much again.
1: Well, thanks for having me. You know, I really enjoyed it.